0: Hello and welcome to The Film Angle. I'm Alex. And I'm Chris. And today we are taking on our second Joachim Phoenix with Mummy Issues film of the year. I didn't think of it that way, actually. (laughs) He's the go-to guy. He's the go-to guy.
1: Yeah, he's not vain, is he? He's not afraid to make himself look a bit pathetic.
0: Yes, yes.
1: That is. I think that is the word. That is the word. Um, he does play a lot of pathetic characters, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, even going back to like a parallel to this movie, Napoleon is probably gladiator where you know where he was a very sort of petulant child in that role as well, so you know it's quite interesting to compare it to um this role he does. Absolutely, absolutely.
0: The French are turning in their graves right now, as we say that. Uh, yeah. However, they might feel better when we go into our BFI films later. <laughs> all the French, they're all dead. Uh, they, <laughs> they might feel better when we uh, go into our BFI films later and we review the Four Hundred Blows and the Danish film. I think it is our first Danish film of uh, mm-hmm. of the series so far, uh, Audette. Um, but that is lighter. That is that is to come, ladies and gentlemen.
1: Yeah, um, pretty like all hefty films in terms of themes uh tonight. So buckle up the talk of some big movies. <laughs> um I'll try to keep it light for you guys still. <laughs> I think you can manage that. I don't think you need to try. <laughs> but um <laughs> Napoleon, yeah, it's a really interesting project because Ridley Scott seems to be like he seemed to got a little bit experimental a few years ago. Like obviously he's known for you know, the early 2000s, kind of starting the big new wave of, of Hollywood epics, sort of marry traditional Hollywood sensibilities, but with today's, like, technology. You know, he's really, really good at production. That's, like, his thing. You can make a movie look epic in scale and, and spectacle, and you can fill it with really good, lavish period detailed costumes and everything, all the bells and whistles. And Napoleon's no, no stranger to this. Kind of one of the reasons I was looking forward to seeing this movie. I'm not going to be... You know the Napoleon expert here at all? I haven't read any books on Napoleon. I have like a brief understanding. Basically, the events that happen in this movie are kind of my base knowledge, and I think the movie's not that introspective too, but it is grand and sweeping, and it's a pretty good swing at this pretty larger than life historical mythical figure. I mean, we know that there's a four R cut definitely coming from Ridley Scott. And Mm. it's like the first time where I'm not like, oh, no, I don't want that. I'm thinking, actually, I think it warrants that. I think this guy, the breadth of his of his campaign as a leader, as a as a person, I think it warrants much more than a two and three quarter hour movie can offer. And I think that's kind of where this movie starts to limit itself in terms of how successful it was for me, although I think it was largely successful.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just want to note that I came into it probably with even less knowledge of Napoleon than you, Chris. Uh, I went into this not 100% knowing he was even French for some reason. I thought he might have been Spanish. Uh, don't know where that came from. I also thought he had one arm.
1: <laughs> oh, right. Maybe you watch
0: Treasure, Treasure Planet again and got, got I don't confused. I know, <laughs> but I was in the, in the film. I was waiting for his arm to get chopped off. I was like, definitely going to be origin. in battle or something. I was like, his arm's coming right off. Um, never comes off. Apparently, there are a lot of people who think this. So I'm not alone. But it is to do with the paintings of that era um, where they almost have their arm in their jacket. So they've got one nice. arm like almost like sleeved up, if uh-huh. that makes sense. Yes, um, yes. So I never learned about Napoleon. I don't think... like I, I know his name. I know he was a short guy. I thought he had one arm. And I remember the silly hat. Turns out... <laughs> He does have a silly hat. He does he does keep two of his arms throughout the whole film. Uh but yeah, there was there was also a moment in <laughs> this is so stu- this is just so showing how stupid I am, but I can't make any uh historical arguments against why this film sucks you're, or you're anything. <laughs> um I think so it's you know, a the mention- coming in. To that, <laughs> it, isn't it? Yeah, I, this was this was a history lesson to me. The historians hate that right now, but this was a history <laughs> lesson to me. Uh, but you know, at the moment where they're like, "We're going to battle it out at Waterloo," mm-hmm. it's, it's, it suddenly clicked. It suddenly clicked. <laughs> <What an laughs> oh, Avatar. he's the
1: guy.
0: <laughs> he's the guy in the episode.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> screw Abba, man. They spoiled this film for me. <laughs> they spoiled it. Did you think like <laughs> was it that you were so? Not in the know that you actually thought that Napoleon had a chance to win this battle, <laughs> <Obviously>. yeah. <laughs> yeah like, He's the
0: mas- master strategist. I was hmm. the whole film, I was like, I wonder who would win in a fight Napoleon or Batman with time to strategize. What, Batman, really, <laughs> that's what people say, isn't it? They're like, if Batman had time to, to figure
1: out his strategy, he'd beat everyone, yeah, yeah, no way. You gotta have a su- he doesn't have a superhero bar. I don't know. I don't know.
0: But anyway, I just wanted to, to just put it out there that I knew zero about Napoleon. And I like this film for giving me more to think about. And you know what? I, um, I, I looked want to go him where? up. I looked him up <laughs> afterwards. Looked oh him up on God. the gram, <laughs> And I was like, tell me more about this guy. I've, I I realize this is not the most historically accurate film in the world. We've been told that. Uh, it's had many critics against that. I think France outwardly just hate this film. I think they, their whole government, whatever, just said this film sucks. I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, it made me want to learn more. So I actually learned more about Napoleon during and after the film than I ever knew uh, before that. that. So there's my ignorance on the historical forefront. And maybe that allowed me to have quite an enjoyable time during this and not be like, well, that didn't happen. And uh, I, I quite enjoyed... Um, Uh, a kind of very sweeping, epic, very whiplash look at what happened. Because we go through 40 years Mm -hmm. within within about two hours or two and a half hours. Um, Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. The four-hour cut might help, but I I also think the film itself, as much as I enjoyed it, does have quite a few flaws, which I don't know, like, it's it's difficult for me to say could have been easily fixed because, you know, I'm not Ridley Scott. Um, but I do think it is a film that could easily have been better, despite the fact yeah. that I really did quite enjoy
1: it. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? I think at the end of the day, you're gonna have to take liberties with with history and because I think there's been so many books written about Napoleon through the years and History kind of gets muddled and rewritten and reinterpreted all the time. So you know, I didn't go into this thing thinking that oh, I'm going to be, I'm going to take everything that Ridley Scott says for you know for gospel. You know, I know that this is a a movie made for entertainment. You know, I, I'm under no illusion coming into seeing a Ridley Scott film, and I know there's going to be liberties taken for that, and you can definitely see those on the screen. But you know, it, it's it's an interpretation. It's it's a way of trying to understand. character you know how how does a man like that function how does a man like that go through life i guess but the main thing that kind of came out of this movie for me was not necessarily all about napoleon it was more france as a whole as as a as a inspection of how they kind of treated and valued life or the world in general it's life was cheap back in those days
0: chaotic
1: within 10 minutes of the film there's
0: like two different leaders <laughs> two of them are yes. killed <laughs> you know like it's crazy
1: why would anybody want to be in par <laughs> it is is beyond mm. me um yeah they are the movie- they are very good at protesting the french even now mm. <laughs> even even now, i've heard i've heard that <laughs> <laughs> It's something about them, um, I can see where
0: it comes from they they don't they don't kill as many people anymore. Uh, yeah. but they are they are very good at a protest, and I can see where it
1: came from. <laughs> I mean, the opening with Marie Antoinette being beheaded, you know, is a real like tone setter. It's a real ominous opening of this film, and it kind of it warms you up into thinking that oh, right, we're going to be we're going to take things pretty seriously here. Um, hmm. And I think people get upset with that opening scene alone because Marie Antoinette in that scene, she's got like her long kind of trademark curly hair, you know, that, that we kind of know even from, you know, people even, know, Marie Antoinette from the Sofia Coppola film or, you know, everybody knows that about her. But in real life, I think her hair was actually hacked off. So she was nearly bald when she was beheaded. So, like, oh, sure. you know, you're going to have a lot of these sort of inaccuracies from the beginning for the sake of you as an audience viewer being able to recognize who they're beheading um so yeah yeah, and i think really scott knows knows that too he's you know if you told him that this movie's not historically accurate i think he'd just tell you to fuck off (laughs) you know i think
0: he has i think i don't know if you've seen his interviews are always great during this time when people say like hey what do you think about so-and-so saying this and he's just like i don't give a shit
1: and you're like, yeah. okay. <laughs> he is—he he, is—he is a grumpy curmudgeon. That guy. Um, I he remember. Is. He is. I remember when his movie *Exodus: Gods and Kings* was being released, and he was doing the press run for that. The interviewer asked was asking him, like, "You spent two hundred and fifty million dollars on this movie, Ridley? Like, that's that's really good. It's really impressive that you can get a budget like that. But like, does this story need a big budget? He's like. Oh, two hundred fifty million dollars is fuck all. You know, like I've I've met I've had friends who made three hundred million dollar films. This is nice no, as nothing. This is a drop in the yeah. ocean. Um, yeah, he's just like I don't think the guy is just like a Napoleon in his own right. <laughs> to be honest, it's quite interesting. He's he's quite um, he's he's just a grumpy dude. And uh, we put up with him. Yeah. <laughs> Some others, yeah. a lot of other filmmakers like that, we don't put up with, but somehow really gets away with it because he makes films very
0: fast. I wonder if that's part of it. And again, because Apple have given him this, cost two hundred million, I believe, um, and I think it's doing okay, but I'm probably not going to make its money back, right?
1: Yeah. Well, Apple are doing a really, you know, think this and Killers of the Flower Men. They're they're making a really big sort of gesture at the minute, trying to. Secure those prestige films. You know, we've had yeah. like the *Florence* sons. We've had, you know, they've bought the *Peanuts* movies and put them on the platform. But like, they're not reasons why you're going to go over to a premium service like Apple. Like, they've really got to really put themselves out there. um Yeah, I
0: think they're trying to attract the big talent because their TV shows always tend to have one quite big actor in it. And mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's their play. Yeah, the Gary moment, Oldman, like, and stuff if, like that. Yeah, if we're seen as like a prestigious place where we let filmmakers and A-listers kind of like do their passion projects, Mm -hmm. more people will get on board. Um, I I think that's what they're doing. Yeah. It doesn't make sense financially, if not.
1: (laughs) One of the things, the challenges you kind of come into Napoleon with is thinking, right, how are they going to balance the battle scenes and kind of the glorification of, obviously, Napoleon's exploits? You know, that's kind of... You know, Guilty as charged is kind of one of the reasons why I was looking forward to seeing the film is because I know Ridley Scott can stage a really good battle scene. Mm -hmm. And how did you feel that those scenes were kind of carried out? Do you feel like it dipped into glorifying war too much? Or do you think it went the other way and kind of, you know, showed the horrors of everything that's going on and the folly of man and how vain these men are for sort of carrying out these acts?
0: Um... I I, I think I think it balanced it pretty well, I think, Mm. because none of the 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 war scenes like in like blew me away spectacle wise, Mm -hmm. though I thought they were really well done. I, I, you know, very kind of if you were looking at them from an action point of view, great. They they look great. Um, Big explosions, things going on, all that kind of stuff medieval warfare is kind of what you want but also it doesn't shy away from like showing you some of the gory side of things i don't think it goes as full as like um you know like saving private ryan d-day beach kind of style like show the true horrors of war it doesn't go that far it probably times could have dense. gone further at times i think there's one scene in particular uh when he shoots at protesters with cannonballs.
1: i think oh, that's sure, a pretty gory yeah.
0: moment um the Horse getting cannonballed, and jazzed. all right, yeah, okay, yeah. The horse getting cannonballed was quite, I was not expecting that. Something, no, no, it doesn't really go much further than that. That's very st- at the start of the film. I wouldn't yeah. say it goes much further than that throughout the rest of the film. It's not Mel Gibson, no, no, it's not, it's nearly there, it, but not it quite. probably could have gone further if it wanted to showcase some of the horrors of war. Um, but I think it's more to show you like. His kind of brilliant mind and how he outsmarts everyone with mm-hmm. his maneuvers and and all that kind of stuff. So, but yeah, they were they work well for me. And there was a, there was quite a lot of them. I wasn't expecting <laughs> so much action in this film.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was kind of thinking like the movie felt like it was going to wrap up once he was exiled. The f- I didn't know that he was exiled twice. That's something that was new. I always just, I knew he was exiled, but I didn't know the time. You know the timeline of everything and you know when it was and if he came back or whatever so that him coming back and reclaiming his army and then going to Waterloo was like i kind of blew my mind that you could do something like that and get away with it you know it just shows the power of that this guy had over people you know despite you know killing being responsible for like millions of their deaths um he was still a champion of the people
0: well considering i thought he had one arm um both both exiles (laughs) came as a a shock to me (laughs) <laughs> Both Exiles came as a shock. <laughs> oh. So, uh, so yeah. However, Second Exile, he ends up on a boat in Plymouth, which is
1: obviously yes. a place you and eating I know brec- very well. eating a nice breakfast, and he talks and about they- how he's looking forward to visit the Cotswolds. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Did you think? All right, so you don't see Plymouth in it. You just see the boat, and it says it's in Plymouth. Oh, it's a CGI,
0: yeah. Sound design. There is a distinct sound of seagulls, and I know there's seagulls in other seaside towns, but the Plymouth seagulls, they got them spot on. As soon as a seagull went, I was like, that's that's a bloody Plymouth seagull. I was like, that is Plymouth. That is, that's the Barbican, mate. That's the Barbican. Yeah. Somebody must have gone there and recorded it.
1: I don't think they did. <laughs> that really was, that, that was a Plymouth seagull, Chris. Tell me I'm wrong. I wasn't really paying attention to the seagulls, really. I was just kind of thinking, oh, that breakfast looks kind of nice. Um, Maybe because you're close to Plymouth, whereas I'm, I'm, am a couple of hours away. It was so bleeding. Like, in was the sign of the actual seagulls. Yeah.
0: Oh, that reminds me of Plymouth. Oh, that is that's a Plymouth seagull, yeah. That
1: one. I did come out the screening, and like a son said to his dad, like the only thing he said about the movie was like, "Oh, they were in Plymouth." <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> that could have been me. <laughs> yeah, I did look around. Can see you, but um, yeah. I mean, I, I, another thing I like to talk about that isn't. Don't, Plymouth don't move sea-less. away from Plymouth, Chris. <laughs> There's not much more to say. Plymouth has... represent. <laughs> I think well, other movies. Refer- I think I only heard Plymouth being referenced once in the Sweeney Todd movie, and then that's kind of it. That's Plymouth for me in terms of cin- cinema. Um, and <laughs> that's really it. But um no, I, I think another thing we obviously have to talk about have to talk about is whacking Phoenix's performance. Um kind of the other reason why you see the movie really. And I think he mm. does a really good job. I heard I heard I don't know if this is a confirmed, but about ten days something like that before shooting, he said to Ridley Scott that he didn't know what to do with the character. Um, oh, okay. That which is actually a weird thing to hear from Phoenix. Um that he was kind of bricking it a little bit (laughs) um which again i mean that's kind of for it's a really foreboding task but i feel like he he makes choices in here that aren't overt and only actually accelerate any intrigue that was there i think any other actor playing this who didn't go out of the script and do you know the weird touches that he does like when um he's married to josephine and whenever he wants you know he wants to have sex with josephine he makes like (laughs) these yeah exactly (laughs) he makes he he acts like a you know a child um and you know he's got somebody he's there's mummy issues hinted hair that are unexplored um yeah he's completely different in under the bed sheets than he is on the battlefield and that's the stuff that's you know i find really really interesting it almost had this kubrick-esque almost felt like um like i was watching amadeus at times the way kind of the kind of flamboyancy that napoleon kind of had a little bit um it's not again it's not like it's just hidden bubbling under the surface and walking's really really good at that i mean there's like when he's campaigning in egypt and they go to the valley of the canes and unearth a mummy, and he does this like weird choice where he like goes to stroke the mummy's face and then jumps and is shocked by it and it's like mm. its little touches like that that you know they really kind of flesh out the character um yeah, he's great. he, he does add
0: good. a lot of layers and i I did like his relationship with um Josephine played by Vanessa Kirby, who's mm. very she's much, great she's good in everything we've seen her in so far. I think she's mm. very much an up and comer um.
1: Yeah, she's I been I might. Well, yeah, apparently so. I've only seen about, her in a few things. Uh, first thing I saw her was About Time and that was 2013. Oh yeah, I did see her in About
0: Time. Yeah. But I yeah, she's kind of like Mission coming Impossible. into her own now.
1: Yes, yes, she's great in Mission Impossible. Yeah.
0: Well, she might be Susan Storm in Oh, that's Lancaster a good IV. cast. Yeah. Yes. Uh but yes, um yeah, she's great. They've got a good thing going on. I think this is where the film I think the film wanted them to be the through point of the mm-hmm. entire thing, why is he doing it? Why is he acting like this? Like, I don't think it fully hit the mark. Sure, I think like I needed, I needed more of a of a through line, and I, maybe I agree, we'll I get agree. that in the longer version. But I do think you could have achieved it better in the two and a half hour version as well. And I think that's where I just I needed something to anchor the film because it whips around all over the place. I think theirs was the relationship that tried to anchor it. Just don't think. Mm. It was enough at times. It's not the performances' fault. I just think like there could have been a more kind of maybe, maybe it needed to hit the nail on the head. Uh, but then again, you know, history is history and all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, I, it's hard. I don't really know the ends and outs of that relationship on a historical level to kind of have much more comment on it. It is dropped like the that does feel like it's going to be the through line of the movie, but then it is dropped for whenever the story needs to you know when phoenix is in russia or you know you gotta mm. they had to drop that narrative for a while and whenever the closing credits come in and, and we get the um napoleon's last words uttered was was it um um france war, war. josephine, josephine. <laughs> yeah and and then and it does the cheesy thing and it feels very really scar we just like highlights the word josephine and bold and fades it out onto the screen and it's like it didn't feel really earned to me i feel i felt like i definitely felt like that was half of the movie and not the movie you know what i mean mm. for that to kind of been kind of forgotten about 40 minutes ago in the movie and then to make that your your bullet point at the end felt a yeah. little bit like a little bit contrived um but that's it but i think really scott is contrived and i think you kind of go into this movie kind of knowing that i think The whole production display everything on screen choices made by the actors is what sells it there are just some eye-rolling decisions i think early on a lot of music choices that um the filmmaker kind of the filmmakers in general you know i don't think really scott's in charge of the music all the time i feel like he probably puts a bunch of guys in charge of the music department and they do their Mm. thing but there's a lot of like 20th century um sort of turn of the century french music used at the beginning, mm. for these like revolution scenes, it kind of feels a bit like tonally out out of sync because I think that's a time thing. You're using music from a time different from ourselves. That's different from a time that the movie set in, and it's it just felt really weird and it felt a little bit you no know, corny. Is such a overused word, but it felt like that. And there was these all of these fade to whites at the beginning that made no sense and didn't kind of weren't used or utilized later on. You know, it felt a little bit like watching Tom Hooper's Lame Is for the first 20 to 30 minutes. Um, and then it gets better and after. that. Josephine looks like somebody out Lame Is for a minute. As she well. does. She does look like Anne I've Hathaway. not seen Lame <laughs> Is, but I've seen Anne Hathaway with a hair shot. And I thought, yeah. oh, France. Yeah, she does look like she's about to say, <laughs> I have a dream. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, no. I'd say, oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, my,
0: my biggest criticism of the film because for the most part I quite enjoyed this like performances like the action like the story Um, my biggest criticism is the color grading and I think it's the color grading because cinematography wise epic stunning all that kind of stuff Mm. and maybe again because I messaged you I was just like do you think the film was too dark literally scenes where it just felt like it was quite difficult to see what was going on I don't know if that was the projector at the cinema or what but like there's a lot of flags in this, a lot of French flags. You can barely make out the colours on the French (laughs) flags. Sometimes they look like grey on grey on grey instead of the red, white and blue. And I just thought like, in a world where you know, all this kind of pomp and pageantry, you know, they're killing kings. It's like a pantomime essentially. It's like a real life pantomime. And you just think like, if the colours popped off the screen, if you saw the reds and the whites and the blues, I just think it would make more Mm. of that that kind of pompousness about it you know it's the rich boys running the country kind of thing i get you i just i just thought like where are the colors man so gray film so gray and dreary and you can tell it's muted because it doesn't look like real life it looks intentionally muted and yeah it was the scenes where there's flags and you're just like i can't even tell that's the french flag right now like what's going
1: on here (laughs) Well, I can't say I ran into the issue of not being able to see any scenes and it didn't really rattle me as much. And I think we've kind of been conditioned. I think Ridley Scott, this has become his sort of colour gradient gradient for his films now. I think The Last Jewel, I think it suited The Last Jewel in its more darker tone. Um, I don't remember and, like recognising it in in The Last Jewel. I just, uh, like, it just oh, it's, stood it's, it's, out to me in this film. Okay. I remember it being as grey as this. Um, but I think it actually helps whenever... You're going to, like I say, you're going to Egypt and suddenly it's like a, it's a quick black cut to, to the pyramids of Giza, and you're like, it's so bright and vibrant and yellow, the screen, you know, and it's like, it actually kind of adds ridiculousness of like, of the time period and how these this guys like dressed up to the nines and this big, you know, his big Napoleon hat and his, his regalia and they're all on horses and they're in the middle of Egypt like, for God knows what reason. And I think it kind mm. of like, th- for that reason, the coloring worked. But you're right. I think it Would doesn't it, go Wouldn't so... it have worked just as much, if not better, if you saw just how ridiculous they looked? Sure, sure. I, it's hard. I think it's because Scott can't really, you can't decide whether he wants to make this a uh, historical epic. Or if he wants to show an introspection of what Napoleon was you know tendencies to be like a child it's a it's a fight mm. between those two tones at times yes. um it's like i want to, he's like i want to give you both of those things um but i'm not going to double down on any of them you just, and that's yes. what the movie is it's like a it's a collection of it's a collection of moments like snapshots and i just don't feel like it's threaded really perfectly well it feels like you're watching a big epic trailer for a napoleon tv series that we're gonna get that's gonna be a masterpiece um yeah and if you think of
0: like the kind of historical figures that we've seen recently on film like usually it's very much a character study you know i'm I'm thinking like pablo lorraine when he when he did jackie and 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 diana mm -hmm. um like and obviously they take liberties too yeah yeah they do they don't get as much shit for it i don't think
1: because Um, they they, they more live in the world of fantasy you know they they wear that on their sleeves but yeah yeah it's
0: an introspective like character study and you're Mm -hmm. right
1: this film this film tries to be both and doesn't do it it's weird isn't it it's like i think nearly every napoleon project that's ever come to the screen has an element of this where there's just like there's a dash of greatness in here and f- somewhere down the line, this thing can be fully formed and that it can be a masterpiece. But it's just it's it's not it's getting there. It's like the Don Quixote of like of movies in a way. It's like it's like oh, there's I really we really want to get the the official Napoleon. This is the this is the definitive story. This is your go to to understanding this this historical figure. And yeah. I think I think this is a good go to if you want the entertainment. Um, but. I don't know. Let's wait for the four-hour cut. That's all I'll say. Yes, is the
0: is the silent film the 1920s one? Is that is that regarded as a good film? Or I just so, know there's a very long silent film about Napoleon. Yeah, I, th- I haven't seen it because if I had, I would have known. He there, was, there was there was a TV
1: show. Wasn't there a TV show done in the 70s or 80s that was like a real. Like they, it was a real attempt. Um, they they couldn't do it because of financing or something. They couldn't do it the way they wanted to. But it was oh, like okay. a, it was kind of one of the closest kind of moments to really getting the actual grasp of 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 what it was. But yeah, I mean, I can't really say we're we're both historically hindered here. Um, but I think, in a way, <laughs> me even more so. <laughs> I I think you are liberated. I think if you ha- don't know anything about Napoleon apart from like you know you know about Waterloo and you know of of him and his exploits, I think you're gonna have a good time in this movie because you you're not gonna be hindered by <laughs> what happened and what didn't happen. Um, hmm. and that's kind of yeah. Like I said, it's liberating. Yeah, it's a fun it's that's a fun cool. time. It's a fun time, isn't it?
0: Yeah i i wasn't I wasn't keen on on seeing this at the cinema. I know it's really bad no, you to weren't. say, yeah. but you you were like I'm seeing it. We need something to talk about for the next episode. You should go see it. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I'll do it for the podcast. Um And I came out, <laughs> maybe because I had low expectations, I, I, I came out um, really quite enjoying myself. And uh, yeah, enjoying it. And yeah, like I said, it made me want to know more about Napoleon. And I might go back and watch the silent movie. I believe it's quite long. So maybe, some point in the future,
1: <laughs> <laughs> forced to. Um, yeah, You're just, I gotta buy you a hat for Christmas.
0: I do want the hat. It is a cool hat.
1: <laughs> I could see you wearing the hat, <laughs> <laughs> and people are having to sit you down for an intervention, Alex. We need to talk about the hat. Stop wearing that. <laughs> and I just start going. Nyum, nyum, nyum. <laughs> it's a good time. It's a good time. It's by no means perfect. Um, I, I don't think Ridley Scott's lost his touch. Um, I, you know, I, I think it, it provides everything you'd probably expect from a Ridley Scott movie. Um, yeah, I think it's a good. It's a good time.
0: Yeah, I I, th- I think it's a hit from him as as someone who who kind of hits and misses all the time. Uh, this is I I think this is a hit. Yeah, I quite enjoyed it.
1: Well, there you go. That's a strong recommend for Napoleon. Um, obviously, you can catch this anywhere at the minute. Really. Um, hmm. I think all the way up till Christmas that you'll be able to find a screening of this at some point. But, and then uh, after that, Apple, Apple TV, I think. Yeah, I, again, do you think... I think, as opposed to Killers of the Flower and Moon, where I feel like you had to see that in the cinema, you can watch this at home. I think you can enjoy Napoleon at home. Don't but you I would rather see it on the big Chris. I,
0: I I said this to you, and you were like, I'm seeing it in the cinema, we've got to talk about it.
1: No, no, well, I'm se- what I'm saying... <laughs> if you've got an Apple TV subscription, you can't make it to the cinema. It's not a disaster, is what I'm saying. This but is it not does like it needs to be seen in IMAX, but it does look good on a big screen. Yeah.
0: Even what was Alex your thought, audience
1: like? Was old people? Mine was a lot of old people. There's a few like there's a few old people like a lot of like old guy friends. Um, yeah. I had a couple of those and fathers and sons. Yeah, it was generally older. Um, yeah, quite a respect- lot. I went on a audience. Thursday lunchtime. There's quite a lot of people. We went on a lunchtime as well, and it was quite. Yeah, it was about. I think about thirty people in our spring, and they were like, you could have heard hear, heard a pin drop the whole time. I think everybody. There was a lot of chuckles during some of those like Joaquin Phoenix choice moments. Um, mm. and, and nobody laughed at mine. I, I was stifling a laugh because no one else yeah. was laughing. This guy yeah I was laughing at moments that nobody else was laughing at too so you know I had comfort I, I, I have a lot of comfort hearing that from you um but yeah 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 I never mind I do think sometimes Alex would laugh at this bit um I which makes it. me laugh in turn um <laughs> but yeah no I, I it was a pretty good experience everybody was really feel like everybody was in, into it you know it didn't feel like there was any restlessness the movie's pretty long didn't feel that long um no yeah it's a I'm actually looking forward to The 4 I will watch it. I think I will as well. And it might be worse, but it might be worse. Maybe it's like it is. Maybe I'll wait and see what people say (laughs) first. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. I think we've talked enough about Napoleon for tonight, Alex. Um, Mm -hmm. Now Mm -hmm. we move on to our two BFI movies. Really actually excited to talk about these. So that's coming up now. As you may or may not know, Chris and
0: I are not in the same room currently. So when we wanted to start a podcast together, we needed a platform that was able to record high quality audio online and separately and also gave us the
1: illusion that we may even be in a studio together. I don't remember exactly how we came across Zencaster, but we've been using it since day one and has never let us down. It's easy to record a podcast of Zencaster. You log in using your browser and start recording a high quality podcast right away record studio quality sound and up to 4k video with your guests feel a sense of zen knowing ZenCaster's multi-layered backups ensure you always have your recordings in the highest quality even if the connection is unstable
0: if you've ever thought about podcasting before and realize that you need a lot of different tools and services those days are over with ZenCaster's all-in-one podcasting platform you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute to spotify Apple
1: and other major destinations. Zencaster is one of the greatest tools used at the film angle and that's why we wanted to share the love with you. So go to zencaster.com
0: forward slash pricing and use our code the film angle and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experiences that we do for all our podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. Back to the show. Yes, well, shall we uh, Shall we get into The 400 pillows, Our first, and I believe potentially
1: only, Francois Truffaut film on the list. Um, you hadn't seen this film before. I, I somehow thought that you'd seen this. Oh, yeah. I,
0: I have, I have. Um, so, yeah, I, I saw this one back in um, university. Um, but watching it again, I was like, I am remembering snippets of this. I don't remember the whole thing. I remember liking it at the time, and I really liked it on this rewatch as well. I'm surprised my brain didn't remember everything, but um, it was university. So when you say I watched, probably it in, in university, hungover.
1: yeah. Did you, when you say watched in university, did you watch it in class or was it like a homework thing?
0: I believe this one was an in-class one, so we saw it on the big big screen.
1: So what was that? Was it like? Good watch it. Did you always feel engaged? Or did you feel like oh well, this is work whenever you watched it in class? Like it's so mm. different whenever you're like I know I'm watching this from an academic perspective and then as opposed to watching it last week, you know, you're sitting at home. Um yeah, sometimes it felt
0: uh like a chore, there's no doubt. And I think that's just because I was quite young and maybe naive, but also I hadn't fully developed my taste in cinema. It was something quite different Mm -hmm. back then. So sometimes seeing a film like The 400 Blows was completely new to me. Um, Mm. So I probably didn't appreciate it as much at the time. Whereas like now, if I was going to see The 400 Blows in a cinema, I'd be like, well, this is cool. Um, Whereas I, yeah, I probably saw it more as homework. However, out of all the films that we used to watch in the cinema at university, this was a good one. What I remember, there were definitely days when we watched stuff, and I was just like, bloody hell,
1: Mm. get me through this. I think, yeah, I think what helps with the 400 blows is it is a movie where it is not necessarily challenging in terms of what you've got to chew on to get through to the end of the story. You know, this is a very linear story that's easy to follow, and uh, it it hits on themes that we've seen loads of times, you know, uh, juvenile delinquency, neglect. Um, just sort of the a child's odyssey and seeing the world through a child's eyes. Now, the movie is about a young boy who's left without attention. He lives in Paris with his mother and father. His mother is having an affair, kind of unbeknownst to his father. Those you know, he eventually comes to realize, and um, his sort of neglect at home and and vice versa in school is having kind of knock-on effects he's not necessarily a bad kid he makes wrong choices like all the time and i think that's in reference to all the adults in his life that he kind of emulates in a way he yeah he doesn't it's not like the things that he's doing is catastrophic and undoable it gets to that later on in the film but that's kind of the snowball effect of the thing but um it's, it's also highlights you know 1959 we're talking here We're talking about the school system and, you know, it's quite aware of itself for the time. The school system back in 1959 is not what it is now. You know, this kid, I feel like this kid, if he grew up in 2023 in in the school system that we have today, would actually be a very intelligent and flourishing young boy. He, He showcases that he is intelligent. He has that element of deceit that kids have, but that's a kid trait. And instead of people in his life encouraging him they beat him down until he doesn't care anymore. And uh, it's really sad to watch. Yes. And the film is kind of his descent
0: in a way. If you were to sum up the story, it would be watching him go through the school system, you know, try and navigate his life at home with his parents who are also going through different things and how ultimately both... Areas of his life end up kind of giving up on him as he kind mm. of descends into into a, a life. Well, not a life, but you know, he nicks something from a shop and, and gets caught, and there and therefore ends up going to kind of a ju- juvenile prison system.
1: Um, when and you his say family, it like that, when you say it like that, like he does a bit of shoplifting. It sounds like not a really big deal. Like if you watch it in a movie now, like that wouldn't be a big deal. But when you're watching this movie, you're kind of like a POV of Antoine. You feel like you are. You feel like you're you're committing the acts that he's commit. You feel like you're right on the ground level with him. And whenever he does sneak in to steal a ta- typewriter, you know he's on a slippery slope already. With every adult in his life, that like the next mm-hmm. thing he does, he's going to be shipped out into that, you know, that, that juvenile. Um, facility I on the coast you know something's gonna happen they turn the kids like it's crazy to me that they turn their kids over to the police in those days like i can't do anything more of this kid um he got a d and he stole a typewriter throw him away you know and it's it's really heartbreaking to see and this it's young also man such go a shame
0: that. as well because he, he gets on so well with his dad at the start like they, oh you yes. know they, they kind of like have a little cheeky kind of joke about things whilst the mum's yeah. cooking, and he says, "Say this, do that, and that." You know, like they they you know, as much as he's a pain in the ass, like they seem to have an understanding of each other. And then later on, when the mum is trying to mend her relationship with him, you know, she encourages him with with books and writing and reading and all this kind of stuff, and and he's very engaged with that. And and it's a shame in the scenes where they just kind of say, "Yeah, sorry, we're kind of giving up on you now." He's like, "What?" This is your kid yeah. man
1: yeah it's it's really disappointing. but the mother uses that like she she well early on in the movie he truants from school with his friend and they go they go see a movie or something and mm-hmm. or they go to the fair they go to the you know remember those sticky walls when you used to go to fairgrounds as a kid like those, those turn around and the floor drops and you stick to the rubber in the wall and it's like it used to hurt like hell um <laughs> he does he does one of those and he comes out and he spots his mother kissing um a strange man on the street and she sees that he saw him on the street and uh, it creates this dynamic at home that adds to even an extra layer. You know, um, the father is still the only one he doesn't really know at that point. And she's using like bribery with him and niceties with the kid to only like help her (laughs) you know and it's it's really disappointing and and i think that angers it just throws the whole dynamic off kilter there's a really lovely scene where him um him and his father are cooking in the kitchen together after she's you know late at work she can't get home out of the office the boss has kept her in overtime but we all know what's kind of going on there um and you're right it's so sad and disappointing to see what actually seems like such a lovely sweet bittersweet relationship kind of descend into the, the father's own problems kind of bleed into his relationship with his son and it, to the point that he gives his son up at the end it's 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 horrifying yes
0: movie's yeah. so cruel <laughs> it's so cruel it is it is um and uh, it's, its it's just also really well shot um you know the, the streets of Paris um kind of mm. just absolutely shine in this as the cinematography is beautiful and it, and it's um for Truffaut, it is his first ever kind of debut feature film so um, it's very simple debut on the list I don't think but as debuts go very well done Um, and he Mm. came from that same kind of pool of like film critic turned filmmaker that that Jean-Luc Godard kind of came from as well
1: Yeah, and I have to remind myself when I watch this that we have seen so many movies tackle this material and maybe even add more layers to the material in terms of the story but you have to kind of look at it from a 1959 lens. And, you know, we're, we're coming of age movies weren't really like fr- fully formed by then. And uh, watching out that, you know, it's simple, but it's so effective and so heartbreaking. You know, like the bit where he steals the typewriter from the office, like that's not that's, in the grand scheme of things in the world. That's not a big that's not a big thing. That's a fixable problem. But here I am, my heart was beating on my chest. I was so scared. I knew this kid was going to get caught at some point. I knew it was going to happen. I knew what it meant for him if he got caught. Mm. And the scene where he goes back in to return the typewriter, because actually he's kind of a good kid. What kind of, you know, any other kid even have done that would have left it on the street and abandoned it. He takes it back into the office to, after he finds out you can't sell it. (laughs) um, He takes (laughs) it back into the office and the night guard is, comes up the elevator just as he comes into the office. And it's like, oh man, it's game over. And it feels, it's heart wrenching. And Yeah. yeah. and those oh, I, I interrogation like scenes
0: afterwards as well are really good. I don't know if you ever saw every now and then the it, it does the rounds on social media. Um, the audition. That, um, so the kid is played by uh, Jean-Pierre Lord, who had a very famous career in uh, French cinema. Mm. Um, he's
1: great in this. He's amazing.
0: He's great. Have you ever seen his audition for this film?
1: No, I have not. I have not it actually.
0: Does the rounds on social media every now and then and it is brilliant. He's very, very natural. He's a very cheeky chappy, and it plays very similar to the interrogation scenes that you see within the film. Uh, but I'll send you a link to the audition um, after this. It's it's literally just him talking with, it could be true for, I can't remember who's talking to him, it could just be a casting director just asking mm. him different questions about his life. Um,
1: just yeah, there brilliant. is something about bite out. You'd cast it- him in a, in a bloody second if you saw it, because you're like, this kid's got something. The cam the camera in this movie does love him as well I mean he he has got such an mm. iconic look and even his little jacket and everything he just the physicality of him the way he walks up and down the street you do really actually believe him as this kind of like cheeky little kid um he- there is something he feels like he is from that home and from that school and from that background you know you, you feel like you're almost feels almost documentarian at times um yeah. the bit that stood out for me the most was probably the ending of the film with that um, interview, that conversation he has with his kind of psychiatrist that's assigned to him and where he kind of confesses everything that kind of happened in the movie. There's Yes, that's what I of, meant. Sorry, I said interrogation. I meant that scene. Oh, right. I thought you meant the police scenes with the father. Right. Okay. I got, I got you. No, right. no, um, yeah, no. Yeah, that scene is incredible. And there's these like little f- fizzle fades that happen throughout it too that are really, really interesting and he just kind of lays out his guts in this movie he's sort of like very blasé and just kind of says right I did this because I did that and he's like he's half confessional and half sorry for himself and it's like it's he's just mapping out everything that went wrong in the film and it was such a poignant moment in here and oh it just I think this thing is really really good I think the thing that holds me back from love it, falling in love with it is because we've been spoiled over the last uh, 50, 60 years. and seeing seen a lot of films like this and I love the coming of age genre, but, um, now this thing, it, it's, it's hard to fault. It's um, very poignant and it's very straightforward, but yeah, it's, 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 it's a beautiful film. Mm.
0: Yeah, no, it's great. It's great. Um, you can, you can catch the film on the BFI player right now. Uh, Indeed. Not sponsored by us, but just letting people know that it's out there and you should watch it. Uh, we we spoke the other week about, um I think it was Battleship Potemkin being, you know, film school homework. And I think the 400 Blows is as well, but I think you'll have a much better time watching the 400 <laughs> Blows. If you're anything like myself, I really like the 400 Blows.
1: Yeah, I think anyone will come out of the 400 Blows feeling pretty heartbroken. I mean, everybody should have a, a BFI Again, we're not sponsored by BFI, but they're, it's a very cheap subscription. I mean, you're paying isn't like it's like three pound or something like that. I mean, yeah, it's to see all these great movies that we've been talking about so far. It's like a no-brainer. Um, yeah. And yeah, and if that's you're a young really easy and thinking about it, yeah.
0: going to university to study film, then mm. get a step ahead. Watch all of these. Yeah, don't do what I like did, your... where I just watched Avengers twenty times. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Avengers assemble. <laughs> Uh, the way different they shoot time. Hulk in that scene. <laughs> it was a different yeah. time. Avengers Assemble's good. I like that movie. <laughs> yeah, I like it place.
0: too. I liked it a little too much it just came out when I started university, so I was like,
1: I love Marvel. Oh, man. And then I like, watched 400 Blows and I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Have you heard of
0: <laughs> Incredible Hulk? Yeah. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. But I'm ready now and I like the 400 Blows.
1: I think it's a good thing, though. I think if you didn't go to film school, maybe you would have fallen out of love for film, and you know, you, you maybe we wouldn't be sitting here having a podcast right now. So I think it's a good thing.
0: Maybe, maybe. Wouldn't be last film of with the, the night, government. Alex. <laughs>
1: that brings us on to the last film of the night on the BFI list, um, and that is 1955 film, debt, which translates i kind of googled it afterwards it translates yes. to the word yes which is obviously a reference to the bible um directed by carl theodore Dreyer. this is a danish film as we previously said um it focuses on three sons of danish patriarch farmer morten who is head of the borgen family morten borgen um <laughs> quite funny when you say it like that um, it is. <laughs> <laughs> he is battling to maintain the status quo in his family the youngest son anders shares his father's faith and um, Mikhail no longer has faith and the middle child johannes has become delusional and actually claims that he is the second coming of jesus christ himself um yes. all the meanwhile Mikael's, you know doting wife goes into a traumatic labor which tests the whole family's beliefs and it becomes a real centerpiece focal movie about what religion is and yeah. and uh and, and faith as as a as a general concept i think it's uh it's it's something i think it's really something i, I think it's they, one don't, of the, they yeah. don't
0: make films about christianity and faith like this anymore
1: you know what I mean? No, they 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 usually cast Sam Worthington and Octavia Spencer. <laughs> oh, that's so harsh to Sam Worthington. <laughs> but you know what I mean.
0: Like we're always laughing at like, uh, is it like God's not dead? God's and not dead. Like that. One, two, you don't and three. Anything nearly as like nuanced and contemplative as this? Because I think it is. It's a really interesting film about religious beliefs and how people, even within the same religion, differ on different beliefs and how that can lead Mm. to some quite nastiness uh, at times played out in the film. The film doesn't shy away from portraying some of these people and their beliefs and kind of being quite nasty with their kind of opinions at times. You know, you have the Orthodox Christian saying to uh, the dad, like, well, I I hope, I hope your daughter-in-law dies. If it makes you believe in the same God as me, but like in this version of him, it's, it's, it's mad. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that it's a very well put together film about faith that doesn't mm. treat anyone stupidly. Even the atheist character in the, in the film, yes. it treats him with uh, legitimacy and, and respect. And although by the end of the film, you know, a miracle happens and we are supposed to believe that, you know, God is real. Um it doesn't
1: take away how contemplative the film is about kind of faith and religion. Mm And I I don't, I think you're so right. It really struck me. Even though that this, this movie does lean on the side of faith in the end, and obviously is from a Christian belief perspective. You're so right. The atheist character, Mikael is not judged at all. Everybody is kind of given, even though the characters may insult each other, uh, certainly as the movie ramps up towards its end, um, the filmmaker and the film itself is never putting those feelings on anybody. It's really just a really, it's really just spectating these people in this community, and um, it feels like a it feels like a real epic play. But also, it feels it's some, there's something like that. We can pull any quote from this movie, and it's laced with subtext and depth to it. Um, I thought that the movie was just like really transfixing, It was just kind of like watching. Mm-hmm. It had old hollywood sensibilities to it. you know even though it was a danish mm. film i had that gravitas that you get from a really well written you know uh like mocking to kill a mockingbird that's sort of like real kind of almost like a courtroom drama from those days and and the performances are incredible i think the father who is played by morton he's obviously the are kind of the character we spend the most time with everything Kind of like a play. Everybody else in this movie is revolving door around him, and he's mm. just always kind of plopped in the middle. And the camera follows him, and people come in and out. And um, I thought he was incredible. I mean, the guy is most the guy's mostly never looking at people in the eyes. He's always just like staring in space. And but he feel like the weight of the world is on this fellow. And uh, there is real sort of grayness to him at the start. I thought, oh, this here's this curmudgeon that he's just like out of touch with his with his family. And then you start to see like real sort of, like sort of beautiful love for his children. I and he grows and changes in in the space of a conversation a lot. You know, a lot. Usually, you know, think about the conversation that he has with, um, with Mikael's wife. Um, her name was Game. Remind uh, me, Inga, Inga, Inger, Inger. Who she's incredible in this movie too. She's probably yeah. my standout performance she's um, like the, uncom- the 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 part that kind of brings the family together and and
0: also like mm. she she is very she has a lot of faith whereas her husband is the atheist but she she's just mm-hmm. like that's cool that's fine by me you don't believe in him now you might at some point but like that's cool and everybody loves her
1: yeah she is almost like purposefully the angel and the, the angelic mm. character you kind of nothing fazes her she's willing to help everybody even you know, it's just incredible optimism. She even promises her father-in-law that she's going to birth him a son and says it with absolutely no lack of conviction in her eyes. But I was saying, the scene that he has the conversation with her at the beginning about trying to convince him to give his approval to let Anders marry the tailor's daughter. And at the start, you think, oh, curmudgeon, is just completely going to say no. And you see this real growth and real you know introspection and in what they're gonna you know what the what this actually is going to bring obviously you know we're talking about a different time here we're talking 1920s rural um uh, denmark and the attitudes it's a lot more transactional um, marriage obviously at the time and it has to yeah. it has a lot to do with the faith you know um both fathers are kind of arguing out because they they they're both christians but like I said one's orthodox and one's you know, just he's more traditional Catholicism, so they kind of battle right between between that, and it's it's really really interesting, and I've kind of I think it's so forward thinking for the time that it manages to really hone these themes in without ever judging anybody, and I think it's really clever having Johannes as this sort of weird, um, extra sort of plot like i think when you put in synopsis like the guy thinks he's jesus christ you know it can Mm. come across as really silly but obviously most of his family
0: think he's uh, you know lost his mind
1: (laughs) they're just like shut up
0: johannes get back in your room
1: (laughs) oh yeah of course (laughs) it's not and it's not like johannes is going up to people shaking them by the shoulders and saying look actually like, like like you know, it's it's some Back to the Future thing where Marty McFly is going back and say, "Hey, I actually am that guy." You know, this guy is looking into space, and he does look like he is delusional. He does look like yeah. he, you know, he, he 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 would be institutionalized back in those times. And they even talk about that in the movie. Yes. Um, so, but things like superstition and how history teaches us about superstition, how people act and relate things to what happens, things start to happen that the the prophecies or the the rhetoric that uh johannes just kind of speaks in in terms of being jesus christ or talking as if he is jesus um Mm -hmm. it starts to have an impact on what actually is happening in the story and it creates a doubt in the viewer um not necessarily family until that miracle happens at the end but it creates doubt in the viewer that maybe this guy actually is um and it's just really interesting to see where the story goes and yeah it does have a big Big gesture at the end of the movie after this horrible, horrible. I mean, there's nothing explicit. It's an old movie, but like you, you. I mean, the baby was in four pieces when it came out, and you know it's and seeing yeah. the masculine. You don't, you don't
0: see that just for people. Worrying. You don't know. No, 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 <laughs> no, no. It's, it's they, the they doctors, just very matter of fact. It's like, is the baby yes. there? He's like, yeah,
1: in heaven. You're like, what about Jesus, man? <laughs> Yeah, uh, Jesus, literally.
0: Literally, <laughs> um, <laughs> What's
1: wrong with you? But it's a real study on masculinity, like the way these guys, you know, how would any of us handle information like that or deal with their wife's being, and in, in, or their significant others being in, in, in that sort of pain and that turmoil? But it's tied into faith and masculinity, like how they handle this. And they're very, they try to, you know, crying is almost seem, seems as, you know, the last stand, that's when things get the most dire. There's a line um, when when Mikael when, when finally cries, and his father Morton says, ah oh, good, finally the tears have come. You know, mm. it, it's, it's like, that is the finality of something. That's when you know it's gone its most dire. We keep our calm, we keep our collectiveness, we keep our faith in God until it happens, because we really, truly, truly believe and, you know, I'm not religious myself, but you don't have to be with this movie. I no. think you can, it, And it, it, like I said, like we said before, it doesn't like hit its points on over you in the head. It doesn't try to convert you. This movie is just literally a study on what faith is. And, you know, and, and, and it has such a big gesture at the end of the movie, but it feels like it's earned. It does feel like it's earned and it's beautiful and poignant. Yes. And yeah, yeah I don't think I've seen the only ever movie that kind of hit me on a faith level that I kind of, I could get on board with. Was probably first performed in that level that I felt like mm. I, you know, I could I really understand. Um, I feel like the intention behind the film is so purely felt. Um, yeah, I, I, I was yeah. balled over by this film.
0: Yes, I think you were a lot more bawled over. Well, you definitely were a lot more bawled over than I was. I, I did very much like the film, though. I must say, it's having thought about it afterwards, mm. uh, the initial kind of close of it. I was like, okay, that was that was good. I, I like. I liked the religious element. Uh, I liked how contemplative it was and how kind of it, it delved deep into those areas. Um, but like my f- first initial thoughts were like, it uses the camera well, but I s- can still very much tell this was a
1: play. Like it was, you know, mm. set in a house. And... Was this a play originally? It was not be yeah, it's it's so well written. Uh, it feels yeah. like it, you know the, the writing comes first for sure. Now the
0: camera work is excellent because it's only made yes. of something like 140 shots for the 2 hour runtime. Uh it moves a lot so like in terms of like somebody actually filming a play to screen um mm-hmm. does it a lot better than kind of most modern adaptations do. <laughs> a lot of them are a bit still yep. very uh, stagey. I still don't think it was, you know, as cinematic as maybe it could have been, but we are looking at nineteen fifty five mm. and we are talking about um, you know, a, a kind of old Danish film here. So um yeah, I think Although there were when elements I think it goes, w- it didn't goes feel... outside
1: though, it's beautiful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The wind noises. Perfect. Um <laughs> <lots> of Wind. <laughs> um <a> <laughs> loss of Wind. Um but for but for me I, I, I don't think I emotionally was as involved as maybe you got, and I I don't know, it could have been time of day, it could have been anything. Um, Mm. but, but yeah, for me left feeling a little bit more cold at the end of it, but kind of admiring camera work story, you know, depth. Um, but having since thought about it more, I I think I'm
1: more positive on the film than I was when I first kind of like finished it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of expectation with this film too. I think Scorsese always mentions it as one of his favorite films of all time. Um, there's a lot of you know it's on this list so a lot of critics really really like it and hold it in such high regard and um, I kind of came in kind of thinking like I was expecting maybe a, a challenging Tarkovsky-esque movie mm. and I was surprised by how engaging it was from the very mm. beginning how the performances really got me through this thing really really well and the performances are so good that I was able to sort of really enjoy and study the text that was on screen whilst enjoying the performances. And that's really hard. And usually these sort of films I've kind of, you kind of need to do your homework before, after and during. Um, and this apparently, one I kind of got the full meal during it. Apparently Dreyer, um,
0: a big fan of the play, actually stripped a lot of the dialogue from the play. So it's kind of bare bones, mm. essential dialogue. Um, that being said, oh. it's still a very talky
1: film, but you're right. It's, it's still very engaging. Yeah. Yeah, I really like this. I think this did you, is probably. Did you when- see the ending coming? Mm, I didn't see it coming. I, I I did think Johannes was out of the picture, and whenever he returned, and I was even expecting like the whole cynical ending of nothing happening and her still being dead. And it teases you so much when yeah. when she opens her eyes as well. Like you're almost like you see her twitch, but you almost think maybe it's a a camera or, like, a trickery sort of thing cinematically that we see, but the audience, the the people in the room don't see. And then she does come back to life, and that really... Actually, no, it did shock me. I was on the edge of my seat the whole Mm -hmm. moment. I didn't... Did you see it coming?
0: um, I always assumed Johannes was probably correct. I thought maybe the film would go into that. But again, I thought it would end on a note of, like... Of a tease, of like either way, this could go either way. Just yeah, um, just just fizzle out, yeah. But obviously, because you you know you like Inga so much from the start, <sighs> yeah, you you're, want you're her happy to, you to want see. Her to survive.
1: Yeah, you're happy to see the miracle happen. You're so, so right. She is so likable. I mean, that whole labor scene. I feel like I was sitting outside the labor room, waiting, like just like praying that she would get through this thing. I think, yeah, the movie does such a remarkable job of. I think she does i don't i don't really know if she had much of a fruitful career. I had a quick look at her um her filmography afterwards and i think this might have been her biggest sort of pro- a lot of these actors was kind of their biggest film um but she's incredible they're all incredible in this yeah Brid- bridget Federspiel
0: mm is her name
1: yeah, she almost came across like a like a really warm Ingrid Bergman like performance. I kind of got that from her. Like she was, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, very very good. I think I, this I could see Paul Schrader loving this movie and that performance. The angel uh. he loves he loves the obsession with the angelic centerpiece of of what a, what a, what a woman represents in the biblical sort of sense of a story, um, yes. in a traditional sense. So yeah, I could yeah, you're see very right. I, but yeah, I loved that. I I was completely bold of over. Somebody who who's probably not not religious i'm i'm probably severely agnostic and i find these sort of these insights these sort of studies of what faith is for somebody who you know has gra- kind of grappled with it their whole life and kind of doesn't know of where to go with it i find it really interesting that, that a movie does it so well and i yeah. I, I welcome these sort of stories i uh, yeah i'm
0: in in the same page as you um in you know not not, um, yeah, very much agnostic and then kind of like you know, but it doesn't turn me away from a film that's that's very much Christian, um, but I think it's kind of respectful and yeah,
1: yeah. I, if it villainized maybe this character, like if it villainized Mikael, I would have pro, I would have had a completely different reaction to this movie, um, yes, yeah, I would I have came across too preachy, but it doesn't, yeah
0: maybe there's films like this out there um today but it definitely feels like
1: you mean i can only imagine
0: (laughs) yeah so i definitely feel like (laughs) (laughs) religious films have gone down a a, 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 an odd route Hmm. of um of recent but you know if if there's one out there that's similar to audette that's kind of respectful in this way please let us know um
1: but uh yeah it doesn't definitely doesn't star julia garner anyway (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs>
0: but yeah no really yeah really interesting film really interesting film um yeah that for me again you can go watch this on the bfi player and um yeah let let it linger let it linger before you 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 properly get your thoughts together um I, i'm definitely more positive on it now than i was
1: alex is converted <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> um, so we're gonna we're gonna obviously you know heavy themes here. We're gonna end the episode on a pretty fun light note. Um, yes, we. So we are going to do a Christmas special episode um we're not just going to talk about movies just before you know you're tucking into your christmas dinner or if you manage to listen to us coming on to the run-up to christmas day Um, we kind of thought hmm what do we do last year we did like a ranked list of our favorite christmas films but this year is a little different so listeners who have been with us from the beginning will remember a segment we used to do called the films that streaming forgot Mm -hmm. and where both of us you know, myself and Alex would pick a god-awful film from the deep recesses from the streaming services, whether, you know, Amazon Prime was particularly fruitful for that sort of thing. Absolutely. Um so, <laughs> Yeah, we we some stinkers on there. I mean, almost too much choice. Um that you'd spend hours and hours getting in your head about it. Um, so we'd secretly pick a film and then dish out the punishment while we recorded the show. To each other films um of the past that we've discussed include um my magic dog uh, derailed and even the infamous atlantis untold um the less we talk about that, fil- that film the better so obviously this year we're going to do a christmas movie special shouldn't be too hard guys as i think uh, the hallmark uh, movie channel cranks out about 10 of these stinkers a year so we you know we should find pretty similar adjacent films um so yeah those are the ground rules you'll have to tune back with us next week to find out what torturous christmas film alex and i have given each other to review on the christmas special um it should be pretty
0: interesting yeah so yeah so the idea is uh next week we we present the film that we're getting each other to watch and then the week after um we uh, we review said god awful film, but despite you know like like you said we haven't done this in a little while. Always enjoyed doing it for the most part, uh, apart from when you gave me Atlantis Untold one time. That was awful, <laughs> uh, but I quite like a bad Christmas film. I really like a bad Christmas film. Actually, I love these Hallmark Christmas films. So uh, yes, 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 I'm I'm charmed by them either way. Because they're always good fun. Um, and I've already watched one this year. So I'm, I'm happy to see more. Bring more to me.
1: <laughs> well, there you go, guys. That's the show for this week. Um, please make sure to tune in on next week's episode where we obviously tease the Christmas special. But for now, this has been The Film Angle. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. You probably all know that already because you're listening to the episode. Um, you can follow us on our Instagram handle at The Film Angle and on TikTok. But for now, that's been this week's show. My name is Chris. And I'm Alex. Bye, Alex. See you later. Britain. Chris. The film angle. You think you're so smart because you got boats.